0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, thank you, sir. We are back here, and we invite you to join us with thoughts and comments for astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. His new book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Now. I'm curious, we typically think of uh, Genesis as a great place to start in terms of finding answers related to uh, the origins of man, today's scientific questions, things of that sort. What led you, Dr. Ross, to begin exploring these questions and their ultimate answers inside the book of Job, a book that most of us, I think, generally just kind of regard as a book largely about suffering?
2: Well, it is a book about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, but of all the books of the Bible, it contains the most content about creation and science. And I think for good reason, because there's internal evidence in the book of Job that it's the first book that was given to humanity of all the Bible's books. I mean, you see references uh, in the book of Job to a patriarchal sacrificial system, which means it must have predated the time of Moses. It's also written as an easily memorized uh, poem, and therefore it indicates that it was probably uh, given to humanity before Hebrew became a written language. You also notice the text is devoid of any references to nations, uh, merely just uh, towns and city-states. So given that it is the first book uh, given to humanity of all the Bible's books, we shouldn't at all be surprised that it lays the foundation for creation. And the other thing that caught my attention it's just how much Moses leaves out about creation chronology uh, in Genesis 1-11. Uh, through 11. And the stuff that he leaves out that's really crucial is material that's already described in the Book of Job. So the fact that Moses uh, edited his material on creation and built on the foundation that's already in Job, I think, again, argues that we need to take a fresh look at the Book of Job, not only as a book that deals with evil and suffering, Uh, but also a book that lays the foundation uh, for creation theology.
1: So the notion here, Doctor, if we take this all in proper and appropriate chronological order, while some might try to be dismissive, in a way, of the Genesis account because of the so-called gaps that are in there. For example, the big time gap from uh, creation of the universe to formation of Earth. And folks will kind of say, well, because of all of that, we don't understand what was going on. That must have been left out because there was no answer. In reality, what you're suggesting is it would have been repetitive because a lot of the gaps and, and items, the key items within the timeline, actually appear in an earlier writing, the book of Job. Exactly.
2: Interesting. I mean, Job is the one that addresses what God was doing between creating the universe and forming the earth. So there's no need for Moses to cover that again.
1: Walk us through some of the highlights, if you would. I don't want to give away the entire punchline of the book, but in terms of, of some of the highlights of the revelations that you found working through the pages of the book of Job in some of, in terms of some of the, the key uh, mile markers, so to speak, in creation.
2: Well, I think what really got my attention is how much of the creation content in the book of Job deals with the second origin of life. I mean, you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are three separate origins of life. Uh, creation day 1 is when God creates life that's physical, purely physical in its form. But in creation day 5, God creates the soulish animals, animals that are not only physical but soulish in that they manifest mind will and emotions and are capable of forming relationships, not only with one another, but with a higher species, namely us human beings. And last of all, God creates the one and only species, human beings, the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, that can relate to God himself. And it was Job that said in the 12th chapter, look to these soulish animals, look to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and they will teach you lessons about yourself and lessons about God. And so as you get into, say, chapters 37, 38, 39, all the way to 42, uh, what you notice is a theme that as you examine these birds and mammals, you can see how strongly they are motivated to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. Well, we're designed the same way. Are also designed and highly motivated to serve a higher being namely god himself uh, and to serve and to please him um, and likewise when we look at these birds and mammals we can see the degree to which human sin and abuse has crippled the ability of these birds and mammals to relate to us and serve and please us instead of coming to us often they run away in fear because they know what we're going to do to them well likewise The sin within us has damaged our ability to come to God and to serve and please him. So in many respects, these birds and mammals are placed by God here in this planet, not only to further our well-being and launching and sustaining civilization and serving and pleasing us, but also teaching us critical spiritual lessons about ourselves and about the problems we have in trying to relate to God And the thing I've noticed as i traveled around the world in my speaking ministry is you don't find atheists in the country. You find them in cities. And in cities, people are exposed to what man has created. But when you're out there in the countryside, you're exposed to what God has created. And therefore, I think that offers a good explanation why rural individuals uh, believe in God, whereas many that live in cities... Or are cut off from contact with the birds and mammals, opt for agnosticism or atheism.
1: I, I frequently uh, pondered in places like the Yosemite Valley, for example, or or up in the beautiful mountains of Lake Tahoe, or other parts of, of the splendor of uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, how it is that someone can look at this and come to the conclusion that uh, it was the... Uh, the organization out of chaos uh, resulting from the Big Bang uh, as a means of being dismissive of God's handiwork in all of this.
2: Well, I've often taken scientists uh, out into the high Sierras, for example, and get them out into a subalpine meadow and just say, you know, what do you think of this place? And they just say, the beauty is awesome. I said, how do you explain that awesome beauty? And it's a wonderful opportunity to introduce them to the God that created it all. Whereas when you're stuck in some office in a big city, uh, often uh, people don't have that kind of response.
1: We lean quite heavily, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ross, on the Genesis account for uh, uh, how the world came to be. And certainly there there are lots of details in there. And yet, from what you're suggesting, as you work through the creation miracles um, in Job 38, 37, 39, it seems as if we could more accurately put, perhaps, that we get more details about man's fall in genesis and more details about the creation of the universe and specifically earth and the preparation of same to sustain life in the book of job is that a fair uh, conclusion yes
2: i think both points are valid i mean uh, for example when you go through the creation days in genesis 1 it implies that god created the sun before he went through his activity the six days. Uh, um, you know, where, for example, it says in Genesis creation day one, let there be light. Doesn't say that God created the light or made the light. He uses the Hebrew verb hayah, let there be light. And in creation day four, the text says, let there be the great lights. Again, it doesn't say he created them or made them, let them be. And, uh, what you notice on creation day four, This is the first time that the atmosphere goes from being permanently overcast to at least occasionally transparent. And uh, what does verse 15 say? It says, so that the creatures would now have signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Bacteria and insects don't need to have that information, but the higher animals do. But when you go to Job 38, verses 8 and 9, it makes it really explicit that it's dark on the surface of the waters in the context of the events before creation day one not because there was no sun or stars but because god had blanketed the seas of the earth with cloud layers that prevented the light that came through mm. uh, job 38 9 and 10 makes the point or remembering 8 9 uh, that god had blanketed the seas with clouds and those blankets kept the seas dark So where Genesis 1 implies that it's dark in the beginning because of the Earth's cloud layer, uh, notice that Job 38 is explicit in identifying the clouds as the cause of the darkness rather than the lack of the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And so that allows you to look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, in the beginning, Earth had an opaque atmosphere. Creation day one, the atmosphere became translucent where light could pass through, but it's still overcast. And on creation day four, the atmosphere gets transformed again from being translucent to transparent. And that relieves Genesis 1 of the most major ridicule uh, of its accuracy uh, from scientific uh, skeptics.
1: Part of the challenge here, perhaps, that we are trying to think of this in a very linear, traditional linear fashion, Uh, I would relate it to maybe the assembly line, uh, making automobiles, and that we would somehow believe that you have to begin most naturally and logically with the chassis, a frame, uh, the wheelbase, and then upon which you'll put the interior, you'll install the motor, you'll install the transmission. There, there's a very specific linear fashion in which all of this takes place to wind up with an automobile. It would be kind of foolhardy to suggest get the whole vehicle put together, and then once having done so, install the interior. That would just seem to be contrary. Have we kind of tried to force God into a very linear fashion, according to our own thinking?
2: Well, the text does say that we are created in the image of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that the way we create and design things is similar to how God does. And, you know, God could do it all at once, or he could use a step-by-step method. And uh, Genesis 1, uh, by using the structure of the six creation days, tells us it's step-by-step. And likewise, Job 38 and 39 uh, establishes it step by step. And from a human perspective, we realize that's the most efficient way to create or design anything. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, God, being the kind of God, perfect God that he is, uh, uses the most efficient process available uh, to create and design. Uh, but one of the things I think we need to appreciate is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books not just one book, and that uh, if you go through the 66 books of the Bible, you find over two dozen chapter-length or longer uh, texts that deal with creation. And therefore, what we uh, searchers of truth need to do is actually examine all the creation texts in the Bible and inter- interpret them as consistently and literally as possible. But I would argue a great place to begin is the book of Job, and then build in Genesis 1 through 11, as well as uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 147 and 148, uh, the creation chapters in Isaiah, uh, and then go on into the texts in Romans and Revelation. And if you go on our website at reasons.org, we actually list every major creation text in the Bible. And we do that to encourage people to integrate consistently across all of God's revelation.
1: If you've just joined our conversation today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross with a PhD from the University of Toronto. He, of course, is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. His latest book called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. The oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the creation miracles of Job 37, 38, and 39. And look, too, at the 10 animals of Job. I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with astrophysicist and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross continues here on KFAX
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called... Bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty, or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, and we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that the, because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that?
2: Well, you know, these uh, so-called crippled designs are a great way to test our different creation, evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless. And so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today, we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today, medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. And likewise, useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no no purpose or role in the human body, and uh, now we recognize that they, too, play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, then that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, then that would be evidence that, uh, that hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now, there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount of, um, uh, quote, uh, useless function, uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth. Because after all, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs. But in the case of the human species, we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of, quote, junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics.
1: So perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, we would expect
2: that a lot of the desire would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms, namely that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that is exactly played out.
1: Part of this uh, discovery process, you spend some time, uh, some fair amount of time, inside the pages of hidden treasures in the book of Job. To the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job, uh, in our time that remains at Doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us.
2: Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the book of Job is why do we see this list of 10 specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top 10 list. And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, but those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and mammal species, and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to, to use them. Uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with it. And I think what's really phenomenal too is if you look at creatures uh, you know, like the ostrich uh, or the goat uh, or the donkey or the horse, uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, they're fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech technology. Uh, So goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit.
1: Final word, you spend some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of hidden treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point.
2: Well, uh, what God does is he talks about these animals that he gave to serve and please us and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them. And he mentions the leviathan and the behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But he says there's one species you're not able to tame and that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride, and without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with Him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job the last few chapters close with a clear gospel message of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for salvation. Concluding in verse 9 in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job recognized his need for a savior and a redeemer and it committed his life to that uh, divine redeemer
1: Taking us deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man a look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of job the new book hidden treasures in the book of job newly published by baker books you'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire bay area as well as through amazon.com our guest its author astrophysicist dr hugh ross dr ross is always delight to have you on the program
0: Somebody's
3: daughter, somebody's child
1: She is somebody's daughter. You know, I don't think we ever think of the issue of pornography in that fashion. Typically, it's an unknown face without a name, somebody that doesn't seem to be connected in any level toward reality. And, and as a result, the purveyors of this, uh, those who are making huge amounts of money uh, at the distribution, publication and distribution of pornography, really don't think about the impact, and yet it has a significant impact, and not only on the lives of of those who are consuming the material, but those who are participating in it from an economic standpoint. Steve Siller joins us on the program. He is founder of Music for the Soul and executive producer of uh, part of the song you just heard there a moment ago, uh, highlighted um, Somebody's Daughter. And Steve, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Craig, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, the lyrics to your song certainly bring it home back to a, a level of reality that I suspect uh, most people um, who are trapped in a world of um, con- consuming a pornography, I don't quite know how, else, how, how to phrase that, mm-hmm. uh, don't really ever stop to think about the fact that, you know what, these are these are real people. These are real lives here.
3: Mm-hmm. Human beings. Uh- Whenever I talk to people about this uh, out, out in uh, churches and in schools and the like, I always ask the question: uh, You know, if if this woman in in the video were your uh, little sister, would that be okay? If it were your uh, wife or your girlfriend or your mother, how would how would that be? And 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 generally, you just see heads start to drop around the room as as people realize that that these are human beings, and I think. The thing that is so alarming is is the desensitization that has gone on and how we uh, in the Church have kind of uh, allowed ourselves to be taken along with that tide rather than opposing it.
1: Yeah, indeed. And, you know, when we think about this, part of the motivation, of course, gets down to a core issue of man's sin nature, uh, our, our mm-hmm. fallen condition in which uh, we get pulled into all of this. And not only from the standpoint of consuming it, but then this is big business, isn't it? It's Major money here.
3: Oh, it's a billion dollar industry. Pornography itself worldwide is, is, is above 50 billion. Uh, child pornography is above 3 billion. So there's, there's a ton of money here. And, and, you know, just thinking about sex and how it sells, there was something on, on Tuesday morning on Good Morning America that, for me, pointed out where we are, what time of the day it is on this. It's 1159. Uh, the new uh, Britney Spears album has just come out. And they did a 15-minute piece celebrating her career. And this is at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they are showing videos of her songs that basically feature groups of half-naked young people riding all over one another, and the entire piece is just a tribute to her. There is, n- there is not one word as to, you know, whether or not this is a good thing. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, I, I doubt very seriously that the, that the ABC switchboard was swamped with uh, disapproving phone calls. And that's what I mean when I say we've kind of gone along with it. Uh, the kind of... Wholesale uh, softcore pornography that you see in any mall. That you see, uh, you know, uh, the, the Washington Redskins football uh, calendar had a cheerleader on the cover that was topless. She had her arms positioned, uh, you know, in a way to hide it a little bit. But basically, this is the kind of stuff that's going on. And we participate in the culture. We, go, we shop at the mall, we, you know, we watch the television shows. And we don't realize that by by going along with this, we are help creating a climate where our young people are, are learning a, a model for intimacy that is not going to serve them at all.
1: We've become terribly desensitized to all of this, haven't we? I mean, down through the years as society and culture have changed, and I, I would suspect in a significant fashion since the advent of the Internet that brings oh, yeah. all of this into your home with the touch of a finger, oftentimes whether you want it or not. Well, yes, uh, that, that, that maybe maybe a lot of people, good, decent people, uh, people that recognize that, that there is damage and injury that suffered mm-hmm. here uh, when you engage in this kind of behavior on both ends of the perspective, um, have finally maybe just kind of, what, thrown in the towel, Steve, and figured, you know what, this thing has become so big, so out of control, so behemoth that it's hardly worth not even fighting anymore because it seems as if you're fighting a losing battle.
3: Well, I've actually heard some. Christians say that, and it really breaks my heart, because my feeling is you wouldn't let your children go out and play in the front yard without teaching them to hold hands and look both ways before they cross the street. And yet, day after day after day, we equip our, our young people with devices that access this material, and not even just access it, that, that allow them to create their own uh, material. I mean, that's happening as well now. And we are, you know, we are not equipping our young people to, to deal with the culture they're growing up in. Uh, and and I, I really want to make the point that, that pornography is not about sex. Pornography is about, uh, it's a fantasy experience. You, you know, you, you, you cut off the power and the screen goes blank. Uh, this is about using a fantasy experience and, and using people because you're taking something. From those people in in the uh, in the video or the magazine or whatever, you're taking something from from them without giving anything back, and I think that's what's so dangerous about it. it. It creates a false model of intimacy, and what's even scarier is that there is new brain science that shows that pornography is actually rewiring and brain mapping. Uh, you know, traditional intimacy right out of our kids.
1: Well, and I'm wondering if at that level, Steve, we're not watching a major paradigm shift taking place in society overall. I mean, we've seen great celebratory comments related to things like uh, Facebook and its role in in such matters as the toppling of uh, Mubarak in Egypt and the notion that with the Internet and social media, you know, even as much as a, a horrible um, dictatorship would try to clamp down on information getting around to people or out of a, of, of a given country, uh, that this has sort of been the feather pillow from which you'll never stuff all the feathers back into again. So right. as much as it's being celebrated, it's helping people get connected and stay together. My goodness, here on Facebook, I ran across a buddy from high school from 50 years ago. How wonderful mm-hmm. that is. And yet it's creating, I would suspect, this sense of, of not just false intimacy, but these walls where all of a sudden now... Levels at which in normative relationships, in historically normal relationships, uh, it, it just it's, it's shifted the terms of engagement.
3: It, it has. And, and, and Facebook and, and the Internet and all the technologies, of themselves, they're not evil. It, it is always a matter of how we're going to use those technologies. And you're right, those technologies can be used for good. And, and I mean, here we are talking on the radio and, and sharing this message. So, you know, I, do, I don't encourage people to be, uh, to be down on technology. I, I encourage responsible use of technology. And just for a moment, I feel like I didn't really address your question about uh, you know, the, the people who feel hopeless about this. I mean, I always come back to God's mercies being new every morning. He's given us another day. He's given us new children being born into the world. Obviously, if he's given us a new day and new life, then there is hope and there is a chance. And and, and responsible people, people who are moral, not just Christian people, people of all faiths and backgrounds who are moral have a responsibility to step up and protect our kids. The, the truth of the matter is 100% of our kids are going to see pornography before they graduate from high school in this culture. So, you know, people are always asking me what the statistics are. At this point, I think you can throw them all out the window. You're right. The feathers are out of the pillow. This is the world we live in. Our only choice now is how will we respond to it, how will we mentor our kids, how will we get healthy, how will we shine the light of truth in the church on this issue.
1: Let's pause on that point. When we come back, let's see if we can't touch on some of the answers to those critical questions. I mean, all right, if we recognize the fact, as you point out, um, our kids are going to be exposed to this. There are those listening right now, housewives, and you know, folks. Say, I never went looking for this, and I went to this website looking for a recipe, and all of a sudden, we all know what the spam does and so forth. How do you go about equipping your kids to understand what this is and and countering what appears to be some very mixed messages. I mean, mom and dad and the church are all saying that this is not good, not healthy, um, is going to be potentially ruinous to your ability to carry on a healthy, proper relationship. And yet... If it's so bad, why is it so prevalent? We'll answer that question as well. Steve Siller, my guest, founder of Music for the Soul, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. We're talking today about um, a recent uh, Harvard Crimson article on pornographic pornography uh, and the question of ethics and uh, how addiction to pornography can be so ruinous to so many aspects of normal living. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: somebody's
1: child. Our conversation with Steve Siller, who is, by the way, the executive producer of the uh, highlight of the tune you just heard a moment ago, Somebody's Daughter. We're talking about the impact of pornography and the challenges that we face in trying to bring balance to this topic. I mean, it was challenging 30, 40, 50 years ago with the advent of of, of certain publications out there, you know, the the Hugh Hefner's of the world, uh, uh, Larry Flint's and those. Uh, Now, with the advent of the World Wide Web, it's impossible to control it. And as Steve points out, parents face the fact your children, like it or not, will be exposed to pornography. The question is, how will they react to it? Will they see it? Will they balance biblical Perspective, and toward that end, is is it problematic and challenging, particularly for young people, Steve? Because as much as parents in the church and those in the know are trying to warn kids about the impact of all of this, that it's not just something that's that's ooh nasty, but it can create false intimacy that later on can damage uh, the ability to carry on a normal relationship with a spouse. But but then too, that notion that. We're trying to combat something here with so many mixed messages in the general public that I imagine a lot of teenagers look at this and say, "Well, wait a minute. You know, if it's so bad and so terrible, how come it's so pervasive?"
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, one of the things that that I think we have to do, and as Christian parents, as, as parents in general, it's it's not easy because I mean, you know, we've all heard about the talk, right? <laughs> Ever since we oh, were kids, yes, the talk. I, The point is, I think one of the first things we can do for our kids, you know, we always tell our kids at church the truth will set them free. Uh, Then we don't tell about the truth that they're living through. And I think what we need to say to them is, look, it's natural to have curiosity about sex. God created sex. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is exciting. But you want to experience it in the proper context and with a proper understanding of its power. So toward that end let me share with you why pornography is not the proper way to experience sex. I, I th- but I think that starting point is admitting yeah this is exciting. This is this this gets you worked up. And and I think I know kids hate to be manipulated. Whenever I talk to high school kids and even college kids, I always tell them don't you realize the pornographers are manipulating your natural hormones? their financial advantage they don't care about you they don't care whether this is going to ruin your ability to have intimacy they don't care whether it's going to mess up your relationship with your girlfriend they don't care about any of that they just want to get you hooked when you're young so they'll have a customer for life and i think when kids realize that they can get a little angry and that's when i think they have a chance against this stuff when they value themselves enough to say you know what i'm not going to be tricked into spending, you know, ruining my intimacy and spending and my worth and my value, uh, throwing it away on this stuff.
1: The talk. How, How soon should we begin the talk? How how educated do parents need to get ahead of it? You know and I know that sounds like an odd question, it's like I'm your parent, of course I understand how the birds and the bees work. If I didn't you wouldn't be here. Well, but you know, yet it's changed so drastically. Steve, even from when I was a kid, and I'm I'm sure. I'm I'm you know, I'm certainly no kid, but I'm no fossil either. It's changed so dramatically to try to be able to understand and relate to these kids as they're dealing with the barrage of not just the internet but now cell phones and texting and sexting yeah. and all this too.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think, yes, parents have to, have to be educated. In fact, uh, there's a number of things I want to say about this. Uh, I, I have a, a, something I've created called the Things You Can Do List, and I want to make sure everybody knows how to get it, because it's free. It's on our website. One of the things that I encourage uh, parents to do is get educated, and I encourage churches to have ongoing parental er- education in this area, because the technology that was the coolest six months ago, you know how that goes. It's out of date already. I mean, kids are able to access this stuff through ways that most parents don't even realize, like through a Wii. You know, I mean, it's crazy what what the technology can do. And our kids fly this stuff like jet planes because they've been on the technology since they were little. Whereas, you know, folks like us, I mean, we've come to it later in life. So we we don't even really understand how quickly uh, and how pervasively this stuff can move around. So, yes, education is important. But I think as, as far as having the talk early... Uh, you know we 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 have to understand kids are seeing this stuff the average age of exposure now to, to pornography I've heard as low as eight the oldest age I've heard in the last year is 11 on average uh, you know I wish we could afford to wait uh, till later because you know we all hate this idea of, of ruining our kids innocence but you know a dear friend of mine his 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 six-year-old was doing a little homework across something hardcore so uh, you know and i've heard that story more than once so i just really you know want to encourage people that, obviously you need to do things age appropriately but i want to encourage people not to shy away from beginning to have these discussions in a way that will give their kids some guardrails and as far as technology goes i mean parents need to understand you, know, you need to have all kinds of, of Internet accountability, Internet filter software on all your computers, uh, the, you know, the blocking software. You need to have it on your phones. You need to have it on your televisions. You need to have every computer in the house and pass through rooms. My son is 17. He still doesn't have a computer or a TV in his room, and he feels Amish. That's too bad. <laughs> uh, you know, that's just too bad. You know, that said, our kids are going to go out into the world. you got to know your parents' friends. you got to talk about this stuff. It isn't any fun. Like you said, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. We've got to talk about this stuff, because we can't... I put it this way. We, the Church wants to be a light in the world. We can't be a light in the world until we mentor our own kids. We can't mentor our own kids until we admit that, as adults, we struggle with it. We need to come clean and get healthy, and we can't do any of that until we just start talking about it. So, to, so for me, somebody's daughter is that light switch that can be turned on in a Church, Start the conversation. And once you do that, there's all sorts of things you can do.
1: Some good insights from Steve Siller, again, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. Steve, finally, if folks uh, touched by this song would like to get a copy of it, is available through iTunes or how?
3: Uh, the DVD's on iTunes. The DVD CD set is at our website. They can go to somebody'sdaughter.org. Or, and they can also, to get the th- things you can do list, they can go to musicforthesoul.org. On the home page, click on Pornography, and it'll take you to a page with all sorts of free resources. And I really encourage them to get the Things You Can Do list from our page, print it out, take it to their church, read through it, and find some things that you can begin to do, things you can do personally, things you can do in your family, in your church, and in your community at large to make a difference. Because if we all get involved and start taking a piece of this, we can turn this tide. I really believe we can.
1: Indeed so. Steve Siller, thanks so much for the time. And again, on the web, somebodysdaughter.org or musicforthesoul.org.